This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Uh, went into the house with him. There were books on the floor that were on fire. There were satanic books that were set up in a circle in the living room. Um, we started stamping it all out. He's screaming for his family. At that time, the younger son comes out of his bedroom. And Tom asked him if he saw his brother and his mother. And he said, yeah, I saw Tommy. He was covered in blood. He said he cut his hand and mommy was taking him to the hospital for stitches. So the little kid went back to bed, apparently. I said to the senior, there you go, he cut his hand, your wife's taking him to the hospital. And he's like, no, both the cars are here. So I said, well, let's check downstairs. Get halfway downstairs. Tom looks to his left, sees his wife, who's been murdered, and just turns around and starts running out of the house. In January of 1988, a small town in the woods of northern New Jersey was rocked by a night of terrible violence. This is the true account of the murder of Betty Ann Sullivan, a 37-year-old wife and mother of two. The brutal, ritualistic nature of Mrs. Sullivan's murder only begins to scratch the surface of this heinous crime. Even today, more than 30 years later, the circumstances surrounding her murder are debated within the community. And of the people who remember that night that still live in town, there aren't many that are willing to talk about it. I was 15 years old that night, but I remember like it was yesterday. Because my hometown became the flashpoint of a crisis that no one saw coming. The story made national headlines because it fit into a larger narrative, an idea, a fear that had existed for the most part within the margins of the American social landscape, but would now be standing front and center. That fear was given a name, the Satanic Panic. And it had all at once metastasized from whispered urban legend to hysterical national nightmare. From Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan, and this is the devil within. You can run off for a long time, run for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gonna cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. These are inexplicable true stories of possession and the supernatural. This first season of The Devil Within is called The Jersey Devil. This is episode one, In the Bleak Midwinter. Betty Ann Sullivan lived a normal suburban life, happily married for over a decade to Thomas Sullivan Sr. They had two boys, Brian was eight and Thomas Jr. was 14 in the winter of 1988. Together they lived in a nice house on a quiet street in a quiet community in the vast enveloping silence of rural Jefferson Township, New Jersey. Great place to raise kids. You know, lots of kids around and lots of stuff to do. And 
neighborhood elementary school to walk to, which is kind of rare in New Jersey. So it just checked all the boxes for us. That's Bobby Kennedy, lifelong Jefferson resident. Founded in 1804, the town was named in honor of Thomas Jefferson, the president of the United States at the time. Then, as now, the area was heavily forested, surrounded by acres and acres of forests, entire realms of forests. As a result, it's an isolated community, a tiny island of a town, nearly lost in a sea of endless forbidding woods. The irony of this isolation is that if you wanted, you could drive out of that valley, hop onto Route 80, and be standing in the middle of Times Square in less than an hour. In the three decades since the murder of Betty Ann Sullivan, it's that combination of country living and the close proximity of New York City that has allowed Jefferson Township to grow into a desirable community for Manhattan rat racers who require a little breathing room. About half of Jefferson Township is made up of the small village of Milton. The other half consists of a sleepy lakeside community called Lake Apacon, named after the body of water it surrounds. Scholastically, the two sides of Jefferson Township were also separated due to geography until junior high. Then everyone was thrown together and left to figure out where you were going to stand and with whom. Jefferson's a real big town because it's split in half by a county park. So one side of the mountain is the Milton section, or Oak Ridge, and the other side is the Lake Apacon section. We've never interacted as kids. You know, we had our own elementary schools. The first time anybody ever met anybody was when we went to the, into the middle school. And it was just always a weird dynamic. It really didn't make any sense. Except for a small group of families, barely a handful from both sides of town, who sent their kids to the private Catholic schools, one town over in the well-to-do township of Sparta. Starting in sixth grade at Reverend Brown Middle School and from grades 9 through 12 at Pope John High School, families who were either more well-off or more pious than their neighbors could have their kids bust over Sparta Mountain Road to study under the authority of the Archdiocese of New Jersey. The Sullivans were one of those families. They lived on the Milton side of town, were a notch or two above middle class, and were frequent churchgoers. The younger Sullivan boy, Brian, was a happy and curious third grader at the local elementary school, while Tommy, the eldest, was a scholar-athlete less than a year away from starting high school. Tommy's academic gifts were surpassed only by his prowess on the wrestling mat. And the administrators at Pope John High School couldn't wait to see this promising young man among their student body the following year. The fact that Tommy didn't attend the local middle school saddled him with a unique dichotomy of adolescent class distinction. He was a neighborhood kid, to be sure, but he was also the enemy when it came to school loyalties, especially athletics. If you were enrolled in Jefferson, you were a Falcon. That's the school mascot, and it's taken very seriously. All athletic teams wear the Falcon as a symbol of strength and aggression. The Pope John mascot is a lion, prideful and noble. Historically, Due to the deep pockets and the strong connections of the church, Reverend Brown and Pope John were able to recruit scholarship athletes that enabled them to field dominant teams across all youth sports, which resulted in fierce rivalries between them and every public school in the conference, including Jefferson. So not exactly an outcast, but in a town full of Falcons, Tommy was a lion. On the evening of January 9th, 1988, Thomas Sullivan Sr. was awoken from a deep sleep just before midnight. 
The smoke alarm in his hallway had been activated, and as you would hope, the ear-piercing squeal was more than enough to alert the house to a critical situation. Without noticing his wife hadn't come to bed, Mr. Sullivan left his bedroom to determine why the smoke alarm was going off. He immediately understood there to be a fire of unknown origin burning in his family room, contained primarily on his couch and the carpet surrounding it. The potential for the fire to spread was high, and he knew he needed some help. Thinking and moving quickly now, he raced back down the hall to wake his wife. It was then that he realized that she wasn't in bed. Mr. Sullivan then opened the door to Tommy's bedroom and found it empty. Although it was late, it was a Saturday night, and Mr. Sullivan knew that his neighbors across the street, the Eastmans, had college-aged kids who could be counted on to be up late on weekend nights, carousing around with their friends. In the 10 seconds it took to cross the snowy street to the Eastman's front yard, Mr. Sullivan noticed something very strange. Strange, yet familiar. So familiar that it took him longer than it should have to process. He noticed his own car, running, yet slightly askew in the Eastman's driveway. A second glance and he realized that his car had been backed into a bank of driven snow, left when the driveway had been plowed after a snowstorm the week earlier. The realization that took longer than it should have was this. Someone had stolen his car and almost immediately crashed it. Whoever it was must now be on foot. But for the moment, he needed help. The Kennedys were a Milton family of some renown. The local baseball field was named in honor of the late patriarch of the family, Robert. His widow, Anne, raised four boys and a girl on her own from the time they were adolescents. Bobby, Stuart, Michael, Billy, and Kellyanne. They were Irish Catholic, New Jersey to the core, as loyal as they come. They were what we call good people. And that distinction, good people, was all you needed at that time and in that place to be considered a person in good standing. On this particular Saturday in January, three of the Kennedy boys... Bobby was 25, Stuart was 24, and Michael was 22. They left their family home on foot, continued along White Rock Boulevard for about half a block until they reached the home of their friend, Chris Eastman. The Eastman's was a frequent destination on a winter weekend night. No work the next day, no worries about drinking and driving, just a warm place to relax with your friends over a few beers. This is Stuart Kennedy, another of the siblings who played a role on the night in question walking up the driveway and there was this car that was just askew at the end of the driveway, like a really poor parking job, and just assumed it was somebody from inside the party that just uh, didn't know how to park. Walking up to the front door, the neighbor from across the street started yelling and screaming and running over. He reaches over me and starts pounding on the door, and the owner of the house, uh, the father, opened the door up, and Tom, who was um, the neighbor from across the street, started explaining to him that somebody tried to burn his house down and his family was missing. The knocking on the door was very strange indeed. That usually meant trouble, or at least the police. In Jefferson, friends didn't knock. They just walked in and announced themselves. You rarely found a locked door. There was this understood promise of security virtually everywhere in town, at all times. It was as though the community simply wouldn't tolerate something so invasive as a break-in or a robbery. You could leave your bike on the front yard overnight, and it would be there the next morning. 
You could leave your doors unlocked. You could leave your windows unlocked. You could leave your doors open. The overall feeling in that community was this. You were safe here. So when the young men sitting around the table in the Eastman's kitchen heard a loud, anxious knock at the front door, they weren't sure what to expect. What they would soon be faced with would be impossible to imagine. Not there, not anywhere, not ever. My house is on fire. I need help. I can't find my family. The young men heard this statement, considered the man at the front door, and took action. The oldest brother, Bobby, would stay in the house and call the fire department, while his brothers, Michael and Stuart, would assist Mr. Sullivan. They jogged back across the street, up the driveway, and to the front door. A quick decision was made that Stuart would stay with Mr. Sullivan and try to contain the fire, while Michael would go downstairs to look for the family. The fire in the family room proved relatively easy to extinguish. It seemed that most of the burned material had been newspapers and books. If they looked closer, Mr. Sullivan and Stuart would have realized that those materials were arranged in a specific pattern before they were ignited. Also, there was a specific subject matter that was consistent throughout the burning papers. But at least for now, the fire was out and everyone could concentrate on finding the missing family members. This is Michael Kennedy, one of the younger siblings and the first civilian on the scene the night of the murder. Uh, went into the house with him. There were books on the floor that were on fire, were satanic books that were set up in a circle in the living room. Um, we started stamping it all out. He's screaming for his family. At that time, the younger son comes out of his bedroom and Tom asked him if he saw his brother and his mother. And he said, yeah, I saw Tommy. He was covered in blood. He said he cut his hand and mommy was taking him to the hospital for stitches. So the little kid went back to bed, apparently. I said to the senior, there you go, he cut his hand, your wife's taking him to the hospital. And he's like, no, both the cars are here. So I said, well, let's check downstairs. Get halfway downstairs. Tom looks to his left, sees his wife, who's been murdered, and just turns around and starts running out of the house. That's when they heard the primal scream from downstairs, followed almost immediately by the sound of the front door being thrown open and Michael Kennedy sprinting off into the night. Worried about his brother, Stewart followed without investigating what had caused such a reaction in Michael. But he would find out soon enough. We were outside waiting for the police, and I heard my brother Mike yelling and come running out the front door and do like an, uh, an Olympic uh, jump across the front yard. There was fresh snow on the ground. I don't think there were more than three footprints in the snow. Um, yelling at the, there was a dead body inside. Across the street and still on the phone with the fire department, Bobby wondered why his little brother was running home, seemingly scared out of his mind. Bobby would later remark that it seemed as though Michael covered the 60 or so yards from the Sullivan's lawn to his own in three giant leaps. Officer Bart McConley was less than a mile away when he got the call, but the snowy conditions slowed him down and it took him almost 10 minutes to arrive. It was the first 1028 of his entire career, brief though it was. In fact, it was the first 1028 he could even remember hearing about in Jefferson, maybe ever. He asked dispatch to please repeat. 1028 was the New Jersey police code for murder. That can't be right, he thought. Then dispatch repeated and gave further details. A civilian on scene claims that a woman had been murdered in the Sullivan residence on White Rock Boulevard. So it took a good 10, 15 minutes for the police to show up. It was actually one of my brother's friends. My brother Stuart went into the house with him. 
to help them search to see if they could find anybody. Amidst the chaos that erupted in the psyche of Officer McConley as he tried to process what he had just heard and what the next 15 minutes of his life would reveal, Bart McConley retreated to an emotional place that he understood. He stopped being a cop for a second and became a local kid with a problem that needed his friends. You know, everybody started to get, you know, anxious, nervous, like, you know, there's a killer in the neighborhood. In Jefferson, the one thing that made the youth of the town strong, the thing that made them survivors, was their numbers. They knew they didn't have to go into danger alone. And if you were considered a friend by the Kennedy family, you had an army at your side. Bart McConley wanted backup, and he trusted the Kennedy boys more than the cops he worked with. When he made this clear that he wanted one of them to go with him, they laughed. You're out of your mind, Bobby said. You have a gun for Christ's sakes. I know, he said, the realization seeming to be dawning on him in that moment. It's just that every time we've ever had to go fight someone, Stuart always went first. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've been a fan of therapy my entire adult life. For me, it's always a struggle with my family relationships. And every time I go back and check in, my life gets better, my relationships get better, and I'm an overall happier person. As soon as you get in touch with the professionals at BetterHelp, they assess your needs and they will match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can start communicating with in less than 48 hours. Great therapeutic matches is what BetterHelp is committed to. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Devil Within. That's Better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for The Devil Within listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash devilwithin. So I wanted to get a new game on my phone, and I decided to try out Best Fiends. First of all, it's free to download, which is incredible. And second, if you're like me, and if you've loved puzzle and strategy games your whole life, then you need to give Best Fiends a shot. It's different from the other puzzle games, because if you really want to succeed at it, you need to engage your brain. You need to see the whole board, strategize, and start making connections. I can't put it down. I'm approaching level 40. I'm in the middle of this super cool ice world. And since there's literally thousands of amazing puzzles to crack, I can't wait to see what's next. But I think what I love most about it is that I'm either able to relax and settle in for a long session with the game, or just clear a few quick levels while I'm waiting to pick up my kids from school. But either way, my brain feels engaged, like some new synapses woke up and have started firing. It's a new obsession for me, and it'll be a new obsession for you. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store 
or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. The fire truck had arrived, but the firefighters were told to stay out of the house until it was cleared by law enforcement. And I said, Barry, do you want me to come in with you? And he said yes. So I went in the house with him and I brought him downstairs. You can imagine the confusion of those firefighters as they watched Bart McConley, an armed police officer, and Stuart Kennedy, an unarmed civilian, enter the house together to clear it. The acrid smell of smoke was still thick in the air as Stewart slowly descended the stairs, Officer McConley close behind him. As they rounded the corner into the downstairs family room, the first thing Stewart saw were Mrs. Sullivan's feet. As the rest of her body came into view, Stewart felt an unavoidable dry heave, as if his body were trying to expel everything that had been absorbed by his senses, especially the sight of the mangled remains of Betty Ann Sullivan. She had been hit in the head with a barbell. Um, her face had been carved up. A uh, thick pool of blood surrounding her head. Uh, at that time, Bart, you know, asked me if I had searched the house. And again, I knew him from high school, and I basically said, "Fuck no, that's your job." And I ended up searching the house with him, with his gun pulled and me just behind him right up until a point where he opened up a closet door and jumped behind it and left me standing in front of it. Thankfully, Officer McConnelly's training kicked in and he was able to search the house without the assistance of any of the Kennedys. By this time, more police officers had shown up, a secure perimeter had been established, and the full weight of what happened in that house was beginning to sink in. Two main questions remained. Who had viciously murdered Mrs. Sullivan and what had become of her son, Tommy? By the time Detective Paul Hart arrived on the scene, the single-story gray house with the black shutters was awash in the manic blinking of police lights. The firefighters didn't have much to do. The fire was contained before it had spread out of the family room. Detective Hart was more concerned with the basement, where the dead body was. At this point, he knew two things. There was a mutilated body of a woman in her late 30s, presumably Betty Ann Sullivan, the woman of the house and her son Tommy, a boy of 14, was missing. Detective Hart put out an immediate APB for Tommy. His working theory for the time being was that the boy had been kidnapped by the killer and was in grave danger. The only problem with this theory was that it conflicted with what his gut was telling him. The husband did it. But then there were some major problems with that theory as well. First of all, there wasn't a speck of blood anywhere on the man. And given the severity of the attack, he should be covered. Second, he wasn't acting like a guilty man. He'd gone for help. He was still speaking about his wife in the present tense. He was struggling with what he was going to tell his eight-year-old. And he seemed genuinely distraught. Now, it's true that all of these characteristics could be ascribed to an incredibly savvy criminal mind. But Mr. Sullivan seemed legit. Things just weren't adding up. It was early in the investigation, but it gave him an unsettling feeling that this case was going to get complicated. And that was before he saw the forensics report. Paul Hart was born in 1943 in East Orange, New Jersey. He joined the Army right out of high school. He flew helicopters in Vietnam, was honorably discharged when his tour was up. He went to school, got a degree in criminal justice. And when he found out that his young bride was pregnant with twins, 
He moved his family to a beautiful small town in the woods of northern New Jersey, where he began his career in law enforcement. He quickly rose through the ranks, and by the winter of 1988, he was the lead juvenile detective in Jefferson Township. For the year preceding the Sullivan case, Detective Hart had been investigating some troubling reports of incidents in the woods along the outskirts of town. Reports he couldn't really explain, but then he entered the Sullivan home on that wintry night. Detectives are trained to question everything, everything they see, every witness statement, every piece of evidence. They do this in order to be able to dismiss certain pieces of evidence as fraudulent, immaterial, or otherwise irrelevant. Or they do this in order to find patterns, to make connections that fit into a larger narrative that points to a conclusion that demands a high level of confidence. The moment that Detective Hart saw the body of Betty Ann Sullivan, he started making connections. And then he examined and read a few of the burnt scraps of paper that were collected from the living room. And he understood even more. And then finally, in Tommy's bedroom, he found the note that would confirm his growing suspicions. Tommy Sullivan was in a kind of danger that no one would believe. I took Spanish in middle school, and it didn't last long. I took French in high school, and that was an even shorter experience. But I'm an adult. I'm married to an Italian, and we'd love to go to Italy and be able to speak the native language. And now, thanks to Babbel, the number one selling language learning app, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn the language. There are 15-minute lessons. Okay, I'm a runner, so when I go out three or four times a week for a run, I can get through two or three lessons in one run. And the effectiveness of the teaching method has been scientifically proven. Start your language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code WITHIN. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, code WITHIN, for an extra three months free. Babbel. Language for life. The minutes ticked by. Evidence was collected. Photographs were taken. Witness statements. Police tape. Even some members of the local press arrived, and still no sign of Tommy. Mr. Sullivan and Brian were safe and warm in the police station under medical observation as teams of law enforcement and local volunteers searched the area for Tommy. By the next morning, with still no sign of the boy, Detective Hart was in his office going through the preliminary forensics report. It had been determined that the victim was attacked from behind, struck in the back of the head by a heavy object. The blow was enough to cause multiple skull fractures, severe brain trauma, and possibly death. The photos showed that the back half of her head had been caved in. A 25-pound dumbbell was found near the body, and closer inspection revealed blood from the victim along with hair samples that Detective Hart was sure would be a match. Hart pictured the scene. The killer had the dumbbell in his or her hand as they hid in the darkness waiting for the victim to exit the laundry room. As the victim approached, the killer raised the dumbbell overhead, and just as the victim passed by, swung down and to the left, signifying that the killer was right-handed, striking the victim and causing immediate loss of consciousness. But that was only the beginning. The victim had also suffered multiple stab wounds from an unidentified edged weapon. 
dozens of stab wounds to the face, neck, chest, and torso. The victim's face in particular had sustained significant trauma. From what I heard, it was done with a barbell, and then also that he used a knife to carve her eyes out. This was personal. The killer put their hands on the victim. The body had been moved, either during the attack or immediately after, for reasons unknown. It had all the hallmarks of a crime of passion, and Detective Hart's instinct was leaning back towards the husband. Then on page two of the report, there was a piece of evidence that seemed to defy logic. It was a sleepless night for most of the homes on White Rock Boulevard, especially the Eastman home. Between the sirens and the flashing lights, the investigators and reporters asking questions, the cops searching his property, Mr. Eastman was looking forward to a quiet Sunday of playoff football. At least the snow had stopped, he thought. Standing at his kitchen sink, waiting for the coffee to brew as he gazed absentmindedly into his backyard, he raised his children here, played catch, had barbecues, lived a lifetime of hellos and goodbyes. This was his home. When something so disturbing, so senselessly tragic happens in your town, on your block, to your neighbors, it affects you in a basic and fundamental place that is impossible to completely recover from. Time passes, but something had changed. It's an innocence that's lost only when touched by evil. If there was anything to be grateful for regarding the events of the previous night, it was that at least he and his sons hadn't seen the body of Mrs. Sullivan, and according to the Kennedy boys, they were lucky for that. Very, very lucky. Like most of the homes on the Milton side, the Eastmans had a fireplace that was used almost every day when the weather turned cold. A few weekends every summer were spent splitting and stacking firewood into a neat, long pile in the backyard. We've got plenty to get us through the winter. That was the thought in Mr. Eastman's head when his life changed. He was sipping his coffee, trying to shake off the horrors of the previous night when he noticed something strange in his backyard sitting against his woodpile. It looked like, like a person. Still in his robe, he pulled on his boots and went out the back door. The woodpile was only 20 yards away. He could see very clearly the figure sitting in the snow, peaceful, save for the fact that their head was hanging off the side of their body. Mr. Eastman stopped cold as the full weight of what he was seeing began to awaken in the last innocent part of his consciousness. He registered the following. The darkness of the virgin snow surrounding the body was blood-soaked and slowly expanding. One wrist was cut so deeply that the hand was bent completely backward, and in the other hand was a small knife that apparently was used to sever the throat from ear to ear all the way to the spinal column to the point of near decapitation. Mr. Eastman cocked his head sideways, matching the grossly unnatural angle of the face he was now looking at. The last thought before tears and shock and nausea was that the innocence still shone in the lifeless eyes of Tommy Sullivan. Still at his desk the next morning, Detective Hart had to make sure that this wasn't a typo. Sometimes these forensic teams on late night calls make a mental mistake. A mistake like checking the box for blood smear rather than blood splatter on the form for a crime scene photograph. That had to be the case in this instance. The photograph was of the wall of the murder scene, and the supposed blood smear was near the very top of the wall, just below the ceiling. If it was splatter, well, sure, I mean, splatter can get anywhere. But a smear that high up the wall would mean that the victim's body was that high up the wall, 
almost eight feet up. That would require either, one, a very powerful person lifted her to that height after she had sustained a wound that was bleeding. Two, after sustaining that wound, the victim somehow propelled herself to that height. Or three, there were two assailants in the room at the time of the attack. Closer examination of the photograph and a closer review of the attached forensic file led Detective Hart to a conclusion that was unavoidable. It was a smear, and of the three possible scenarios he was considering, only one made sense. There were two killers out there. He was sitting in quiet contemplation of this when his phone rang. Tommy Sullivan had been found, and it wasn't the news he was hoping for. The crime scene was across the street from the Sullivan home in the Eastman's backyard. And if the questions in his head weren't enough already, there were about to be many, many more. Mr. Eastman had been smart enough, or scared enough, to stay away from the body. The crime scene was intact, untouched. The snow surrounding the body was proof of that. Only one set of tracks led from the woods to the wood pile. Tommy had walked there alone. He picked a vantage point from which he could see his front door, where he could watch as the coroner removed his mother's body from the house. Then he sat down in the snow and went about the terrible business of killing himself. He had a small pocket knife that he got from the Boy Scouts, a knife he would now plunge deep into his left wrist. He, he slit his wrists. Both his wrists were cut to the point that the wrists were snapped back. He tried to slit his wrist, but he put the knife between the two bones. Only he didn't quite know what he was doing. The blade slid between the bones of his wrist, severing tendon and ligament, but not rupturing enough blood vessels for him to bleed out right away. He tried again and again but kept getting the same results. In terrible pain, probably close to passing out from shock, and afraid that he'd be discovered before he actually finished the job, Tommy chose a more permanent solution. With his remaining good hand, he plunged the small three-inch blade into his neck. His throat was cut. Essentially, almost decapitated himself. He was cut from ear to ear. The depth of the cut was astonishing, as was the amount of damage it inflicted. Arteries, muscles, windpipe, larynx, all completely severed. There was an explosion of blood and gore, and the weight of his head, in the absence of the muscles of his neck, nearly overcame the structural integrity of his cervical spine. As it was, the result of the single slash of his blade left him with his right ear come to rest on the back of his right shoulder blade, with his chin pointing straight into the sky. You know, he was in about a 10-foot circle of blood. He was laying in the middle of when he started to cut himself. He he just was bleeding out and kind of spinning around. And, you know, there were no other footprints in that circle. So, you know, it was, again, another just weird circumstance. Detective Hart knew immediately that the blade in Tommy's hand would have forensic evidence confirming it as the knife used to murder Betty Ann Sullivan. He also knew that Tommy's fingerprints would be found on the dumbbell in the Sullivan residence. What he didn't know was how these wounds could be self-inflicted, and he wondered if any evidence would be found indicating that the death of this boy was anything other than a suicide. Well, what we had heard, again, from people in the police department was that the coroner had doubted that he could have committed suicide just because of the brutality of the way it was done, but they had never come up with proof or any kind of evidence that he didn't commit suicide. Questioning of the family opened up many disturbing avenues of investigation for law enforcement. Satanic worship, 
musical influence in the form of heavy metal bands, concealed obsession with the occult, and all in an incredibly short period of time. The family stated that at Thanksgiving, Tommy was his normal self. But six short weeks later, he seemed to be a completely different person. The last piece of evidence that was collected that night and delivered to Detective Hart the next morning was a folded sheet of paper recovered from Mr. Sullivan's car that had been crashed and abandoned in the Eastman's driveway. It was written in Tommy's hand and was a contract between Tommy and the great demon of hell that called for the murder of his family followed by his own suicide. The signature on the bottom was simple and clearly legible, barely in cursive. The signature of a kid, a child really, who mere weeks prior was a well-adjusted boy of 14, a loving son and brother, a loyal friend and gifted student who was completely normal and well-adjusted in the way that all parents hope their children to be. To understand exactly what happened to this promising young man now requires a deeper investigation, an investigation into the fertile, impressionable mind of a teenager and what influences could so dramatically alter his entire personality. Were there signs that everyone missed? Could this have been prevented? And finally, is there any way for us to possibly know if there was something darker, something more sinister at play, that led to a 14-year-old boy murdering his own mother and then taking his own life? A boy named Tommy Sullivan, who would come to be known by a new name, the Jersey Devil. The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production, written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.